Welcome to The Launch, the podcast sponsored by Tandem Launch, where we talk about tech, startups, entrepreneurship, and everything in between. We give you the inside scoop on building a startup, capital fundraising, the entrepreneurial journey, with both funny and impactful stories. This podcast is for budding entrepreneurs, ecosystem players, industry folks, venture capitalists looking for deals, students considering a career in the startup world, or anyone with a curiosity in DPEC. If you have a research background in tech and always wanted to build your own startup, then check out our website, www.tenemlaunch.com, or hit us up on LinkedIn. Let's build the future together. And now, on the show. So welcome, everybody, to The Launch, a podcast sponsored by Tandem Launch. And today, I will be co-hosting with our technical director and principal scientist, Omar Zar. So welcome, Omar. Thank you, Bobby. Good. Uh, along with our guest uh, for this episode is Dr. Thomas Skopik from McGill University. Welcome. Good afternoon, Bobby. Hello, Omar. It's a pleasure to be here. So today, um, you know, we'll go through some really interesting topics, but maybe just to begin, uh, Thomas, tell us a bit about your background and what you're working on in the lab these days. Sure, sure. So um, to make an abbreviated uh, summary of a life story, I was born on the east bank of Warsaw in Poland, and my family emigrated to North America just before martial law came down. And I've since then had an opportunity to live in Toronto, Vancouver, Los Angeles, and Montreal, where I currently reside. I did my PhD in electrical engineering at the University of California in Los Angeles. And there I worked for uh, a fellow by the name of Eli Yablonovich, where we were always at the interface between science and engineering. And so now I'm a professor at uh, McGill University in the electrical and computer engineering department. And I've kind of kept that torch of uh, being somewhere between uh, engineering and science alive. So most of the work that we do in our laboratory has to do with new opportunities for a new family of materials, which we call 2D materials. And these are essentially materials where atoms arrange themselves into atomic sheets. And so think of a sheet that is just one atom thick. And so there essentially the, the materials itself is a surface. And so there are a lot of interesting physical properties that come about from that. And that's really what um, my lab uh, investigates from both a fundamental perspective and also applications. Wow, that atoms arrange themselves. I mean, I can barely arrange them myself, never mind my atoms arranging themselves. How brilliant is that? Um, so we have partnered with you uh, for an invention um, and spun out a company uh, that we know and love or a sound. Um, so maybe share with our audience how you came to discover this materials marvel and um, how you transformed that into uh, artisanal headphones, as you characterize it, which I think is really cute. <laughs> so uh, that, that story actually starts with a research project, which was um, going nowhere and <laughs> causing frustration <laughs> within the group. So I had a graduate student, um, Peter Gaskell, who uh, had a brother or has a brother, pardon me, uh, Eric <laughs> Gaskell. And uh, Peter was my student in electrical engineering. Eric was a PhD student 
in the faculty of music at the time. And we had this material in the lab, we call it graphene oxide. So it's basically, I think of an, a, a, a sheet of carbon atoms, and there's some other atoms attached onto it that give it some other properties. Anyways, we were doing some things that weren't all that interesting at the time. And we were just wondering over a beer, you know, can we do something different with it? And uh, both Peter and Eric being musically inclined as myself, actually, uh, the idea of making an acoustic transducer came up. So think about uh, microphones and, and headphones. And this was just really a, a crazy idea. So uh, Peter and Eric went ahead and uh, built a prototype and remarkably it worked. So uh, when I say it worked, I mean, we got a microphone that had some kind of signal, which was remarkable. And that started this journey then where, you know, we filed for an invention and we drummed up a little bit of money here and there. And eventually we were put in touch with Tandem by uh, the Office of Technology Transfer at McGill University. And that's where things really took off. So uh, Omar was one of the uh, people to visit our lab in those early days and saw our really uh, low-tech prototypes. And that's when the idea of trying to find a commercialization path for this invention uh, took off. And, you know, from my perspective as an academic, something that I want to emphasize is that this idea is, has a very, it's, so it has a very simple physical basis. If you make something that is very light, meaning low mass and very stiff, then that will be able to respond to some kind of external stimulus very fast. So you have some some fast response. And there's reasons to believe why this would make a great uh, acoustic transducer. But this is the kind of problem that is completely unfundable research. Like if I were to go to a grant agency and say, oh, I need money for this, they would say, oh, this is uh, un- unfundable because no one's really doing anything in it. So it's a really, it was a really an idea that was far out there. And it's a credit to all the students that contributed and also to, I would say, the um, broad uh, vision that Tandem Launch had that they thought that there was indeed something there. And so that was the, the genesis of the whole thing. And But I, I really want to emphasize also it's just the genesis because there was so much work that had to be done to take this kernel of an idea and turn it into something that can be a company that has a viable business model and, and so on. And that's, uh, as an academic you know, there's only so many things I can say intelligently about that that side of things. That's more, I think, on Omar's side and Tandem Launch's side, which is, I think, why also the partnership has been very, uh, very fruitful and positive from from my perspective, because we have such different uh, skill sets, and you need both to create something like Aura. Yeah, well, it was. I remember it very clearly because it was actually one of my my first operations, if you will, see, uh, scouting technology. Uh, I remember we'd gotten the call from uh, Derek, who was at the technology transfer office at McGill, and he'd mentioned that uh, that there were graphene headphones <laughs> that we should listen to, uh, graphene oxide headphones, and so we headed over. And I think what I mean, um, yes, it was an early demonstration, and yes, sure, there was a lot of work to do. But it, it remained one of the most compelling demos I'd ever heard because you put those headphones on. And from what I understood from you, Thomas, it had been sort of mechanically assembled together by a student and hacked together. And uh, but you could hear the difference. You could hear the difference really clearly. And even at that stage. And so and so it was easy for us to get excited about it. 
Yeah, well, there's this fantastic quote, you know, that nature cannot be fooled, which comes from from Richard Feynman. So, you know, if there's a if the if the invention has some merit, then it should be not too difficult to show that there is indeed merit. But then, of course, bringing it up to uh, to a, to a level that it uh, can turn into a business that uh, that's a whole other <laughs> can of worms. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I, the interesting thing that we we ran into uh, along the way was that uh, people have different opinions on what what a sort of base level of quality should look like for music and for headphones. And that, that opinion differs based on what customer segments you want to appeal to. And, uh, and in many cases, gra graphene oxide and this particular invention for us struck uh, really a lot of different boxes, whether it was quality or power efficiency and the like. And so actually most of the work, if I recall, was spent just figuring out how to make it um, reproducibly uh, and, and, and have the same experience across, across different devices. At scale. Yes. Manu manu manufacturing <laughs> the, has yeah. always been uh, you know a, a key key element here. You know, how to how well, to produce that's, something uh, that works. That's the I think the, the promise and the curse of materials research is that the, the promises are enormous, but the uh, <laughs> the manufacturing question is always the first one that comes to mind. Right. Right. So Thomas, you know, you know, we start technologies hopefully based on inventions that you know we, we get from universities uh, like yours, but you know, how, how does, how does an, if you're talking to academics, how does one know that you actually have something that might be interesting, uh, you know, commercial potential market? How, how does one know to walk themselves over to the TTO office? Oh, the, the answer is, is easy to that one. Like you never really know. <laughs> I think the, <laughs> I think the, the best way to know is to just go ahead and try. So that means that, you know, from, from a perspective of an academic, you would have to, I think I found that this idea was compelling enough and simple enough that I could see that, yeah, maybe this could actually turn into something that is kind of checking the boxes from the perspective of uh, a product. Like, can you make it uh, economically enough that you know people could afford it? Does the performance hit uh, hit some metrics that that are that are uh, appealing? Uh, are the resources there to to make it happen? And so I thought that you know there's a chance. And so I think the best thing to do is to to reach out. Like, if you have an idea, is to reach out to people and see what their response is it's uh you know if you spend all your time in the lab like uh, i personally find that very fun but it's hard to, sometimes you lose perspective and you don't so things that you think are really great people will not be so excited about and then other things that you don't think are so great you know other people get really excited about it's very hard to predict and i, I think another thing i can take away from my experience with with tandem has been that working with the right people is really important so i was very fortunate to have uh, students who were bright uh, hardworking, and motivated and i was very fortunate to uh, have a colleague in the technology transfer office at mcgill who was able to give very good advice in a very frank way and also, I was fortunate enough to to meet Omar in the lab, and you know he asked very pointed questions early on, and that helped us formulate uh, you know some some that helped us to think about problems that we had never thought about before because we were thinking about things maybe purely from a, a chemistry perspective or a physics perspective, but not in a more practical perspective. So having the right people around you is also quite important. Well, I mean, anybody who gets a chance to talk to Omar, it's definitely going to be better off in their life. <laughs> no, 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 to no. That. <laughs> But I can, so I'm going to pose this question, but to both of you, because I think you both have different two perspective, a broader perspective on it. You know, when advising a researcher on, okay, so they, they think they've got something and they're sort of 
pursuing it and talking to TTO office and, and, you know, they've, they've got their ideas. What about like misperceptions or like this idea of, you know, they have an, a vision of how this is all going to go. And then when they get there and they realize, wait a second, it's a year later and this isn't built and I'm not a millionaire. Yeah, I will disclose that I'm not a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> Yet. So, so uh, that was not at all my intention. I think as an academic, if you are looking to make a million dollars, perhaps there are lower risk enterprises that one could enter than um, trying to take an invention from the lab into and to, to commercialize it. And so I will also say that uh, you know, from that perspective, this, this idea that you can make a lot of money, uh, I, I suppose there are, may, there are examples where that does happen, but I think that can't really inform all your decision-making. So for example, uh, one thing that I had consciously decided early on was to uh, divide up the ownership of intellectual property early on uh, amongst the, the students and the co-inventors as a means to help incentivize their, their own work and, you know, instead of trying to argue over a bigger share of zero dollars, then why don't we share uh, things more equally? Because maybe it's a bit of a, a more of a motivating uh, uh, factor. Uh, and I think also one has to be realistic. Having an idea in the lab is great, but the amount of work that it takes to turn that idea into uh, something that feeds into a business plan and build up a business, uh, that, is a, that is an incredible amount of work that also has to be represented with the equity and the company that forms and so on. So if the idea is to get rich quick, I'm not sure that that's, uh, I mean, it happens, but uh, statistically, I don't know that it happens uh, in the way that we might imagine in a cartoon or something. Yeah, certainly. I think um, from my perspective, I think there definitely is the opportunity for wealth. I mean, we've, we've seen this play out in tandem launch with some of our inventors of, of our older companies uh, come into you know, quite a bit of money in the process. I think where um, where the pitfalls happen is is when our inventors have a very strong opinion of how the invention is going to make its way out there, um, because at the end of the day, that that those that first year or two for a deep tech startup are are mainly exploratory. You're really you're really taking every opportunity that you think is worth chasing and and trying to figure out. Um, how, how this invention is going to manifest itself as a product in some place that someone cares about. And so, um, and so that, that divergent exploration often is at odds with, with inventors that feel that, you know, their specific invention should go in one specific direction and, and, and that's sort of it. Um, on the wealth side, to Thomas's point, it's certainly not a way to get wealthy quick. It's certainly not a way to get wealthy easily either. And, and the risks are, are many, uh, but I do think that there's a, a great deal of value, and, and, and Thomas really epitomizes this, in, in socializing your research and your ideas around. And, and, and ultimately, it's the discourse between, between you, your research, and the people that you speak to around you that yields these opportunities and, uh, to proliferate your work and, and ultimately to uh, perhaps make some wealth on it at the same time. Yeah, I, I fully agree with this, this, this idea. And... I think in some ways, something that also I take away from, uh, some, I, I had forgotten to mention this, something that was very uh, interesting in this process was the change in perspective amongst students. So it was really a motivating thing for students in my research group and in uh, those of my colleagues 
uh, even if they were working on disparate things, just to see that there was some work that was done in the laboratory, which then was being transformed into something that has a tangible result for, for people beyond the academic community. That was something that I think also made it clear to to students that uh, and researchers that in in my circle that oh this is a, a possibility because if you don't see it it's perhaps a bit more abstract so this comes back to this point of socializing uh, these ideas amongst uh, amongst the, the community so I think um, that has been something also that has been an experience associated with uh, working with tandem launch that has been quite quite marked for me so this then brings up the conversation about open innovation. So we're going to open up a bit of a academic can of worms here, um, because in order to say socialize or to start talking to people about what you have, like sometimes there's this idea, I think in startups too, sometimes or people have an idea and they think I'm not going to tell anybody because I don't want anybody to steal it. Um, or, you know, with, uh, with, academic research, they don't want to share too much of, of the results until they've published because they want to be able to, you know, take the claim. And because that, of course, affects merit and, and their status um, in, in the grant world. So how can we, it, but it also has an impediment, right? So it holds back, there's, there's research that gets held back and doesn't, doesn't um, proliferate as rapidly as it could because people are kind of holding on, you know, holding their cards tight. And then there's this open innovation sort of movement happening at McGill, where some people are really like, no, we, we need to just let it all out and share everything open source. Um, but then how do you patent and commercialize and make companies based on IP when all that's happening? Well, that is an enormous can of worms. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a can of worms that... that, that uh, I would say has been open for a long time. Uh, I just since you brought up this uh, this uh, allusion to uh, academics' desire for fame, I'll just point out that I had the opportunity a few years ago to visit temple devoted to Confucius in Beijing, mm. and this is the site of the old Imperial Academy. And in the museum there, they had this fantastic quote dating something like a thousand or one thousand one hundred years ago of one academic complaining about uh, his peers that they are all motivated by fame and greed, and this is corrupting academia. <laughs> and so this problem is very old, I think, about um, you know how to work out how to share information and we see it uh, taking all kinds like there's all kinds of tension that arises uh, if we talk about for example things like vaccines or if we talk about technology that has security implications for for society how do we deal with uh, patent infringements between nations and so on it's it's a very complicated topic and I think there's a, a big discussion not just about who controls and owns information that has commercial value but even pure scientific value so how how accessible should research be to the public and I don't know that there are any easy answers I suspect that it's a matter of for each subdiscipline, one has to uh, take into consideration what are the the balances between protecting the interests of uh, inventors and investors versus that of societal good. And I'm not even sure that one can so easily divide the two. Ideally, you would have both being seeing benefit from a well-designed policy. But uh, you know, the patent system is very old; it dates back from from Renaissance Italy and 
it is perhaps uh, important to keep updating it as technology changes the way we, we think of inventions and information. Yeah, I guess um, I've thought about this a bit, at least in the context of startups. And the way I see it is that you have you have a bit of a dichotomy here. I mean, you have the you have openness, which is I, I believe a requirement for innovation, a requirement for interesting ideas to emerge, the ability to converse openly about ideas. And then on the other side, you have, I mean, secrecy or, or proprietariness, oh, is that a word? Uh, <laughs> uh, to keep something proprietary. Uh, and that's uh, for me related somewhat to incentive and to competitiveness, right? And so I think ultimately uh, there's going to be a conflict at their extremes, but in each context, whether it's you know in the, in the in the context of a startup where you do need a competitive advantage, you do need to be able to ha to block others from doing what you're doing long enough for you to get it out there and to be successful at it, especially in the face of all these incumbents who have an advantage over you in other manners, right? Whether it be manufacturing, scalability, or what have you, being able to protect that, that core idea um, to, to keep you alive long enough to, um, to face head to head with these, with these other companies is, is important. Um, and, and the incentives aligned with that, you know, equity and the like is I think also important. And on the other side, you wanna balance that with, with the ability to, um, to keep generating new ideas. And so I think one way this manifests itself in our companies is, uh, the relationship between the core IP uh, in the early stages and um, and the the leadership driving that towards a product where patenting is important, developing a patent portfolio that that uh, underlines your narrative is important. But at the same time, uh, they they've got huge networks with academic circles and uh, where they share their findings and their research in order to expand on what they plan on doing next, what what their blue sky initiatives look like. And so you can see that dichotomy play out within companies as well. And, and the, balance, um, the balance is necessary between both of them. But it raises a question then, how is that balance established? So is it through, is there a systematic way to, to assess, you know, is the, is the dial turned too far to one side or the other? And you're absolutely right that uh, in the absence of incentives, uh, things get uh, stark pretty quickly. And so I can, <laughs> the personal experience to draw upon in, in my case is, is uh, having seen what communist Poland was like and the absence of uh, in incentives had some very, very clear uh, clear effects on on society as a whole. So it comes back to how do you design the I think the the system of patenting and enforcement of of patents and what's the whole ecosystem like as well in terms of uh, supporting uh, inventors and how does that get regulated and is it designed in such a way that uh, things tend to be stable and the dial is adjusting itself to be in a, an appropriate place or whether it's uh, going to extremes where uh, which, which we agree is not, uh, not good. Absolutely. And then there's, those fa there's some fascinating hybrid endeavors you see play out in open source software, for example, where you have this public repository of code, but then um, the ability to add on proprietary aspects. Uh, and and I, th I think watching how those ecosystems play out in the next few years is going to be interesting because I think it might set the template for how, this, how a startup might successfully balance those two things, especially on the, on the software side, at least. So I'm wondering if there's like a, a timing or sector specific sort of type of type of um, ways to deal with it, meaning 
like in uh, what I noticed in, in science departments, they were often, so they did need to patent something if you had a small molecule or something that was going to turn into a drug that is was going to be pretty massive, but they were often just patenting just a little bit too early. And, you know, there was kind of rumblings around um, if they just waited a little bit longer and progressed a little bit, because as soon as you do it too early, then yeah, it stunts it. So it's like, could it be that they just, there's some type of rule that you, there needs to be a stage that you've reached before you're so allowed to patent something or or could it be discipline specific like are there certain disciplines that really just shouldn't patent well i can't i can't say i'm sure about um about stage because i imagine that depending on the type of technology the stage is going to be different especially also based on the application so there's just so many permutations there that i think you hit infinity pretty quickly but um but I, I, I suspect some, some of the places where I've seen um, clashes which have been rather inconvenient for some of our startups are early patent filings that were just unbelievably broad for, for you know, unrealistically broad in the way that the claims, that the claims had been described. And, and, and to be honest, I'm not really sure how, how, that, how you could approach a solution to those problems because typically, you know, the first to open up a new field of invention will usually be able to state their claims rather broadly simply because there's just no other set of inventions to compare it against. The novelty is really high. Uh, but that's that's where I've seen at least a sort of a stunted ability to to develop further innovation is when the claims themselves uh, felt really really broad and left really no room. Yeah, this is uh, as someone who who is on the writing of patent side of things. This is always a, a difficult issue to wrap one's head around: is how how do you know when to patent and how broad should one be, or and how exhaustive in specificity should one also be? So I had the quote-unquote pleasure of uh, trying to read a 200-page patent once, which I didn't make it through. <laughs> and, uh, it was uh, similar to a patent that we were uh, authoring, which was uh, a more modest uh, dozen pages. And so you you do you have an incredible degree of freedom in how you craft a patent and it's not always obvious which which way to to go well what about the agents or the lawyers are they just like patenting like no matter what like someone wants it they get it or or there's some some degree of like no you should not is somebody standing up and saying this is too early i mean the patent offices are usually pretty good at saying no (laughs) (laughs) very good at saying no i think ultimately what you see is um so I, I think that I, in the ideal system, you have the patent lawyers that are on your side helping you draft the broadest claims possible. And then you have the patent office, which is supposed to try and, and carve down your, your broadness as much as possible. And those two tensions, um, hopefully, you know, a sort of fight against each other until you arrive at something that's perhaps close to the right answer, objectively. The, the trouble is, is when, um, when, when you're opening a new field, when you're patenting in a completely new area, let's say there's just not a lot of precedent, it's a relatively unique area, that counterforce is is weakened right so you end up with a system where the where the broadness of the claim where you favor the, the people coming in with broad claims and the patent office isn't equipped with any any real precedent to be able to help carve down the specificity of your invention and and so i think that that's ideally we're looking at again this sort of dichotomy where you're hoping that uh, these two sides can battle it out and arrive at something close to the right answer uh, but you see you see them fail at the extremes i think there's 
a very big question too, which is uh, beyond uh, patents only, but even just uh, ideas themselves. So sometimes the ideas are too early for the time. So there's a there there's a myriad examples of this. Tesla uh, had envisioned, for example, the sending of uh, not just uh, oral communication by radio waves, but also sending pictures and books. And of course, he lived in a time where there was no electronics to to make that happen. But he was already thinking of those ideas, and so you could think of uh, a patent on that, but it would never have any value because it's just there are too many other technologies that were missing to realize it. You know, the transistor was patented in Canada decades before the first transistor was ever made, and that was also a patent that did not yield any money. So sometimes it's not easy to predict the future route of a technology. And I think um, this is a this is a very big very big problem. But for those technologies that do do bear fruit, there is indeed this this uh, this tension that uh, you Omar you you've described quite quite nicely. Okay, well, I hope people realize that they're you're talking about Nikola Tesla and not Tesla the company. Um, just to make that clarification, um, I'm, I'm very sad to hear that you have to say that because <laughs> <laughs> you never know these days. You know, Elon Musk did not invent <laughs> no <laughs> um so then let's yeah let's move on to crazy ideas then on, on that note so thomas what is the craziest sort of cutting edge or big problem trying to be solved in electronics research these days uh, you know i have to choose just one <laughs> i think i think the, yeah i think the one that um, in the context of our discussion about electronics and 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 the future i think the biggest one has to do with the energy efficiency problem so as electronics has become ubiquitous the amount of energy that is consumed by electronics is uh, becoming non-negligible. So depending on which forecast you believe, it can be something, there, there are some forecasts that uh, estimates something like 8% of total global electricity production will be consumed in data centers. And if you start to ask, where does all that uh, electricity go? Um, it goes to heat. That's like a thermodynamic thing. And why is it going to heat? It has to do with the efficiency ultimately of uh, trans Transistors. And so to make a long story short, the thing that I'm really excited about is trying to make a transistor that works with less voltage. And so you take a modern piece of electronics that works with roughly one volt. And if you could reduce that by a factor of 10, you could reduce the energy consumption by a factor of 100. And that would have a remarkable impact. So then what are we doing to solve this problem? So it actually comes back to Aura in some ways, because the very same physical idea that if you make something stiff, and light that it is easy to deflect well you can take those ideas and apply it to even a single layer of atoms and so what we are trying to do is make a little mechanical switch where a single layer of atoms moves up and down and closes and opens like an electronic uh, contact, for example. And yeah, it's a bit difficult to describe purely in words. If I had pictures, I would <laughs> show you a picture. But uh, the idea is to make, basically make a structure that looks very much like a or a headphone, but incredibly tiny at the le level of uh, submicron and to try to then make it a switch that operates at very, very low voltage and thus um, at high energy efficiency. And this is an idea that is way too premature to patent. So uh, I will not be writing a patent about it anytime soon. <laughs> this is truly uh, academic work that uh, is confined to the lab for now. 
I mean, what's really interesting about the problem um, that you're that you're addressing here is that while it all it solves the power efficiency problem or the waste issue when it comes to power, but it also has uh, some significant consequences for computing itself. I and mean, being able to compute without uh, without using up that much power means you can you can process faster. You can uh, so there's going to be second order effects here that are going to be huge once someone figures out how to create a, a transistor that requires less power and can be more power efficient. Indeed, and, and in fact, this it comes back to actually a point of what is the minimum amount of energy that you need to perform one logical operation. And this is, in fact, an old scientific problem that has resulted in a lot of heated debate about thermodynamics and so on, going back to Maxwell and so forth. And to kind of connect to some fundamental things, fundamental concepts, the transistors we are using right now, they are consuming something like a million times more energy than they need to if they were working at the absolute thermodynamic limit. Now, if you had something working at the absolute thermodynamic limit, it would be not very reliable, but still there's an enormous amount of room for improvement. And so uh, I think this is what an enormous problem. People have been working on it for decades. And in fact, this this energy efficiency problem, by the way, is what motivated people to move from vacuum tubes to silicon electronics. It's always been there, this motivation to become more energy efficient with electronics. In our case, uh, we're, we're thinking of trying to squeeze uh, squeeze a bit more energy efficiency out, but this might be a problem that remains unsolved for another 100 years or who knows, or maybe we'll have some in, uh, interesting results next year, but uh, it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen. And the question of reliability is interesting because you wonder if perhaps there's a role for software or clever design to play in there, error correction, uh, that, that can sort of take advantage of the energy efficiency and overcome the reliability issues at the same time without having to break the laws of physics. <laughs> so it's uh, fascinating that you ask this question. I actually wrote a paper 10 years ago that uh, gave a negative answer to that <laughs> query, that, to that, oh, that hypothesis where... If you if you make your so imagine you make your transistors smaller and smaller like Moore's law asks us to at some point if your transistors become too unreliable that you start to have to use um, error correcting protocols and so forth it turns out the overhead for doing that is too high a price and you're better off just scaling back to more reliable but larger slower transistor and working that way and perhaps the way to think about it is that if you have some number of electrons that are going to be in your electronics if you divide them up into two small puddles of electrons in each of your transistors they become unreliable and organizing them in a way with some error correction uh, has too much overhead so you're better off to kind of put them in bigger transistors where they're reliable enough so there's some sweet spot that one one should find you can't you turns out it's better to prevent errors than to correct errors if you want like a tagline for that well i learned something new today <laughs> yeah, I, I think that could apply to a lot of things indeed it does <laughs> <laughs> Great. Love it. Yes. So I I would love for you to, instead of taking 100 years, yeah, maybe you could take care of that next year, Thomas. That'd be super great. Um, I'll pass that message along <laughs> to my graduate students. So then, um, yeah, I think that uh, brings us uh, nearly to the end of, of our podcast. Is there anything that you need? Like, are you recruiting lab members or um, how can people get in touch with you? Um, collaborators? What are you looking for? I'm online. I don't have much of a, I don't have a social media presence, but I am online. Uh, so if uh, people are interested in uh, the work we do, by all means, uh, uh, give us a shout. 
Great. Love it. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for being on the podcast. Thank you, Omar, for taking the time. And for our listeners, you can hit us up on social media. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Come find Tandem Launch. And if you are thinking about starting your own company, then hit me up. And uh, for everyone out there listening, thanks for taking the time. And that is, uh, that's it for the day. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Bobby. Great <laughs> thank talk you very to you, much, Thomas. Bobby. Thank you for listening. We hope you had fun and gained valuable insights. Why don't you subscribe to the Launch Podcast today? You can share the podcast, tell a friend, and follow us on social media. If you have a research background in tech and always wanted to build your own startup, then check out our website, www.tanumlaunch.com, and get in touch today.